two ways to raise money, either the hugely expensive public offering or falling within one of these exemptions. So the theory has always been, listen, if you're going to advertise, then that is a public offering. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, guys, and welcome to another incredible edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. In Los Angeles, I'm Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Welcome to part three of my series devoted to understanding how to use syndication investing to scale your real estate business. We have covered some great topics in this series, but just as a refresher, in part one, we covered the syndication basics. I explained the simple definition behind the word syndication. I spoke about why investors and business owners use syndication and how it is the ultimate leverage opportunity. In part two, we spoke to John Cohen, who's what I like to call syndication in action. John is actively using syndication to grow his real estate business and his wealth. In just two years, he went from owning a few small properties to now owning over 150 units, and he achieved it all by using OPM, or other people's money, aka syndication. Today, we explore the legal rules and regulations when raising capital to fund your business, or as an investor who is involved in syndication, and what both parties need to be made aware of. So let's get into today's show. gentleman in the hot seat to give us all the straightforward insight and info on raising capital for syndication is Mark Roderick. G'day, Mark. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Mark has over 30 years' experience practicing law and is one of the leading crowdfunding lawyers here in the United States. Mark and his team assist entrepreneurs with all facets of business growth, from aiding clients raising capital through private placements and venture capital to helping businesses minimize corporate and individual taxes during the planning stages of business acquisition and mergers. Mark regularly speaks at crowdfunding seminars and forums across the United States on the topic of raising both public and private capital. But Mark, before we dive into all the nuts and bolts of today's show, can you tell us something that most people might not know about you unrelated to being a successful crowdfunding lawyer? (laughs) Well, I'm a skier. That's really what I, I I love being on your show, Reed, but what I'd really like to be is uh, out out skiing in the the Western (laughs) mountains. So yeah, that I, I'm a skier, and I uh, I have a master's degree in mathematics, which is something okay. sometimes people find interesting. I'm not sure if it's relevant to to crowdfunding, but yeah, those are <laughs> those are two things, at least two that I would be willing to share publicly. Right. Well, I'm a I'm a I'm a recovering uh, structural engineer, so I love math. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, what's your favorite mountain on the uh, East Coast? There's no such thing as a favorite mountain on the East Coast. The favorite mountain is Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I don't know if you've ever been there, but just absolutely most fantastic ski mountain in the world. I haven't been there, but I'm dying to go. Um, I've seen a lot of videos from from, uh, Jackson. It looks like an incredible spot. (laughs) Maybe you and I have to go sometime in the future. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll take you up on that. Fantastic. 
So listeners, in part one, I explain the syndication and simply put, it's the act of pooling investors' money together to help fund a business. And in our case, it's real estate investment. So Mark, let's start at the beginning. From a legality point of view, when I'm raising capital for my real estate business from investors, in the government's eyes or the Security Exchange Commission, the SEC, I'm raising money from the public, right? So and in return from for investors' funds, they receive either debt or equity in my business. So can you walk the listeners through the layman's terms of how the SEC works and how they've set up a regulatory framework on how businesses can solicit funds here in the United States? Yeah, that's a fantastic first question. I just just a brief history lesson. Sure thing. Back in the 1920s, you know, we had in the United States and globally, we had the Great Depression. And the Great Depression was caused in large part, uh, people at the time so believed, by a absolute failure of the U.S. securities markets, in particular Wall Street. Wall Street was largely unregulated. It was filled with fraud and deceit and market manipulation and just just a real sewer. And that led to the collapse of the financial markets, which led in turn to the, to the Great Depression. Franklin Roosevelt, when when he was elected in 1932, one of the first things he turned his attention to was fixing the U.S. capital markets. And um, I'm, I'm giving this history because all of our securities laws in this country, almost all, date back to that period. So that's why we are always referencing things like the Securities Act of 1933 and 34 and 39 and 40. So the way it works ever since then, okay, is that anytime you are selling a security, and a security has a hugely broad definition, it includes stock, it includes debt, it includes partnership interests, it includes limited liability company interests, just, just about anything, you have to do one of two things. You either have to go through a hugely expensive public offering of the kind big companies like Facebook do, and that costs like more than a million dollars. So you either have to do that or you have to find an exemption from registration. And so your show last week, or last time I'm sure, talking about syndication, was talking about exemptions from registration under the securities law. And there are a number of exemptions. The most popular for the last 30 years has been a set of exemptions issued by the Securities and Exchange Commission under what they call Regulation D, as in David. And under Regulation D, there are several exceptions to registration, little cubby holes that you can fit in. And the most popular of those has always been Rule 506, which has allowed you, without you know going through the whole expensive public registration, to raise basically an unlimited amount of money with very, very loose rules as long as you were selling only to accredited investors. And, and you can tell me whether your audience has, has heard the term accredited investors before and whether I should sort of say what no, that they, means. They, uh, they know in general what accreditation means, but we'll, we'll get into that. 
uh, as the show progresses. But I'd, I'd, I'd love to learn, learn a little bit more. Or the, I know the listeners would love to learn, know a little bit more about the Regulation D. And the, I know there's a few rules out there, for, uh, 504, 505, and 506. And, and what that means individually for those rules and what I can and can't do, being either on the investor side or on the raising capital side. Right. And as you say, there are several cubby holes of exemptions under Regulation D, and they all kind of do different things. As I say, Rule 506 has always been the most popular because you can very unregulated, you can raise a ton of money, and as long as you're only dealing with accredited investors, it's like you know the American Wild Wild West. Under Rule 506, if you start dealing with non-accredited investors, then it becomes a little less like the wild, wild west because you have to provide a ton of information, not quite a ton, maybe half a ton of, of information to the, to the non-accredited investors. Then rule, rule 504 is in some ways simpler. It's often used when you're just raising a little money, uh, less than say a million dollars. However, this is, this is a key. When you're raising money under Rule 506, you can ignore all the American states. Every state has its own mini SEC, and every state has its own registration requirements. So when you're raising money in this country, you're not just dealing with the federal government, you're dealing with all the state governments. When you raise money under Rule 506, you're allowed to ignore all the state governments, basically. But when you're raising money under either Rule 504 or 505, you cannot ignore the state governments. And what that means is if, as is often the case, you're raising money from investors and they just happen to live in you know, three or four or five different states, now you have to go comply with the law of the four or five different states and find out what exemptions they have for you. So it can get <laughs> it can get very time consuming, a lot of lawyer time. So you have 506, 504, and then 505 has its own rules with its own investment limitations and its own informational requirements. Rule 505 isn't used very much. First for little local offerings, people have traditionally used 504. For most offerings, by volume, by far, they have used 506. 506. And 506, I think you briefly touched on the fact that it can have non-accredited investors, or is that a different regulation? 506, so, so this is how it has always worked. There used to be just Rule 506, mm-hmm. period. And mm-hmm. using Rule 506, you could raise as much money as you wanted you could have as many accredited investors as you wanted, and then you could have up to 35 non-accredited investors in the deal. Um, and if you had the non-accredited investors, then you had the, the additional information requirements. So that's what, what changed with the JOBS Act, is that, that what we used to refer to as just old Rule 506 that became Rule 506B, as in Bravo. So that still exists. And then the, the law added the new rule, 506C, as in Charlie, that 
is different and and really is the first and biggest kind of what we call crowdfunding. Right, right. And then with all these sub, you know, 506A, 506B, 506C, do I need to comply with all of them when I'm raising money or just an individual subsection of that particular um, regulation? Yeah, it's kind of both. So Section 501 is a mm-hmm. bunch of definitions <laughs> that apply right. to all the other subsections. 502 is a set of rules that in general, for the most part, apply to all the other rules of, of Regulation D. And of course, the most significant of those rules in Section 502 is thou shalt not advertise and solicit. So right. it has always been the case under Regulation D that you could not advertise Mm-hmm. And just going back to what I said before, why has that been true? Well, as I said, there have been two ways to raise money, either the hugely expensive public offering right. or falling within one of these exemptions. So the theory has always been, listen, if you're going to advertise, then that is a public offering, right. and you have to spend all that money to go through the whole IPO process. If you don't want to have to do that, then you have to keep it private. So right. that has been the linchpin of of Regulation D for the last 30 years, no advertising. Right, and, and that's, I guess, the definition between public and private offerings. Is If you if you fall under the Regulation D, you're a, you're a private offering, and if you want to go out and advertise to the public, you're a public offering, and so you have to do all the – jump through all the hoops, as you said, and pay all those all that fees and monies, and which is, can be very, very expensive. So how do you not advertise? How do you get your, the word out that you want to get – you know, raise some money – under Regulation D, but you're not allowed to advertise. So, what steps do you see invest? Uh, sorry, you know, crowdfunding people, or as I like to call them, syndicators, using to get their money together and pull it and put it into a deal. Right. Well, of course, now under the Jobs Act and Rule mm-hmm. 506C, you can advertise. So right. that's the huge new. That's why all the securities lawyers are sort of dancing in the street, which is not <laughs> a pretty sight, I might add. Um, but just just to, to answer your question about how it has always done, been done until now, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a very perceptive question because yep. the answer is you had to raise money using private networks. So, I mean, you're a, a real estate guy, and, and you know when you try to raise money, it's really hard. You start out you know, asking maybe your friends and family, and then maybe there's a couple business colleagues you know, and maybe your lawyer knows some people, your accountant knows some people, and you you basically spend the next six months going door-to-door kind of testing all these private, disconnected, non-transparent, inefficient networks to try to raise capital. Right. And that really, you know, they the private capital markets are kind of the definition of a market ripe for disruption because they are so in, inefficient. Right. Um, so, I mean, your question goes to the heart of why crowdfunding is so important. That's you know, right. because now under Rule 506C and the other kinds of crowdfunding, now you can use the internet. Now you can advertise, and right. and all those middlemen who were so important, you know, become a lot less important. Right, so what you're trying to say is that the new Jobs Act has opened up 
uh, a new avenue of advertising purely because they can vet the, the, these sort of passive investors a little easier online and, and through other forms of accreditation. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, crowdfunding, as I say, several, you know, dozen times each day, actually. Crowdfunding is, apart from all the technical rules, now we're glad we have the technical rules because otherwise, you know, people wouldn't need lawyers. <laughs> but mm-hmm. apart from that, it's just the Internet. Crowdfunding yeah. is just the Internet. And when you think about what the Internet does to industries that it comes to, whether retail or hotels or taxi cabs, mm-hmm. it connects buyers and sellers directly. And right. it bypasses all those expensive, inefficient middlemen. Mm -hmm. So in the investment world, that's exactly what's happening. It's connecting you, read the real estate developer, with John Smith or Sarah Jones over here, the investor. You can reach them directly and they can reach you directly without needing any of those middlemen. That, right. That's why it's so disruptive. Right, right. And I guess to just to bring the listeners up to speed, up until this point, until this you know, recent title, title three, you know, you have had to sort of uh, maybe, as you're saying, d- express that you've had pre-existing knowledge with an, with an investor in, in an investing pool if you're going to use syndication. And now this Title Three has changed that. And as you said, Mark Smith on the internet, I don't necessarily need to have a pre-existing relationship with. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, that is yeah. absolutely correct. Just like I don't have a pre-existing relationship with my Uber driver, <laughs> you know, he yeah. finds me and I find him on the internet. We connect on our phone. Boom, we're done. Mm-hmm. And just think how disruptive that is. The same thing is happening because of crowdfunding. Right. right now, right. I just want to say you mentioned Title Three, mm-hmm. so there are three flavors of crowdfunding: Title Two, II, Title Three, and Title Four. Um, title Three is the one, the le- the newest one, the newest kid on the block, maybe with the most potential. It becomes effective in May, probably about May fourteenth. And it's the one that allows everybody to participate, accredited and non-accredited investors. So it's brand new. Title II became effective in 2013. Title IV became effective last year. So with Title III, we will now have all three flavors of crowdfunding alive and flourishing. Right, right. And for those listeners out there, when we talk about crowdfunding and syndication, they're pretty much the one and the same thing. It means pooling investors' money together to help fund a business. It, it just, you know, someone might say, Let, what is crowdfunding? And some might say, oh, what is syndication? They're really the same thing. It's just placing money in an investment so both the business owner and the people looking to rent their money out uh, make money together. So, uh, Mark, you know, let's talk a little bit about you know, how how people are accredited. We've talked a lot about non-accredited and accredited investors. What do I need to be, or, you know, compared to what it used to be like uh, before the, all these changes came in, how did I have to prove that I was an accredited investor or a non-accredited investor in, in the, you know, Rule 506C? The rules for who is accredited and who is not actually haven't changed for the last 30 years. So for an individual, mm-hmm. you you are accredited if, you could check any of the boxes. Your income is $200,000 a year. That's one box. Yep. Your income together with your spouse is $300,000 per year. That's mm-hmm. another box. Or your net worth, excluding your home, 
is at least a million dollars. That's a right. third box. Now, there are a bunch of other boxes for people like banks and big companies and stuff. But for most, for the vast majority of individual investors, those are the three boxes. You need to be able to check one of them. Okay. In the old days, under old Rule 506, an, an issuer, the real estate developer, could rely on what you told them. He just had you sign a form. Yep, check this box. I'm an accredited investor. Yeah, yeah. Under Rule 506C, as you were alluding to, mm -hmm. the developer can't just – take your word for it anymore. They need you to prove in one way or another that you are accredited. And the proof can be done in any of several ways. You can show people your tax returns or your W-2 or your brokerage statement, or the favored way is you have your lawyer or accountant just send a letter saying, right. yep, he's accredited. And that's the way most people do it. Right, right. And on the non-accredited side now with all these rule changes, it just means you don't have to do any of that stuff or there's still some, some hoops you've got to jump through? Now, if you're non-accredited, mm -hmm. then there's nothing to prove. In Title IV crowdfunding, if mm -hmm. you are non-accredited, then they limit how much you can invest in each deal. Right. Um, they limit it to basically 10% of your income or net worth per deal. In Title III, they limit everybody. Even if you are accredited, they limit how much you can invest through, through a complicated formula that please don't ask me to <laughs> explain on the phone because I will get it wrong. Non-accredited people don't have anything to prove. They will be asked in both Title IV and Title III, they will be asked how much they earn and what their net worth is because that will determine how much they're allowed to invest. Right, right. So just as a recap to all those listeners out there, non-accredited, up to 10% of your net worth or your income, which is ever is lower, I assume, Mark? Uh, it's actually whichever is higher. Oh, okay. And that is, that is in Title IV. Mm -hmm. And then Title III is a different – it's a complicated – formula. Uh, complicated <laughs> formula. Right, right, right. So, Mark, in part one, I spoke briefly about PPMs or pub, uh, private placement memorandums. What do, you, do you want to walk us through the role it plays and what investors should look out for in a PPM and any other documentation if someone's coming to them, you know, and doing sort of a little bit more of the old school way of trying to raise capital to fund a deal? What can people look out for investor-wise to make sure they're not getting, you know, shanked by a shark, as they say? Yeah, well, okay. So the PPM, as I'm sure you guys have been discussing in your in your previous program, yes. it is a it's a fancy name kind of for a disclosure document. Mm -hmm. So under old rule five oh six, if you're dealing only with accredited investors, you don't have to give them any information. You don't have to give them a single piece of information. By, yeah. There's no law that requires you to. However, there's this rule in the federal securities laws that says that if you fail to give people important information or you give them inaccurate information, they can sue you. Mm -hmm. So even in 506, old-fashioned 506 deals, you would typically give people 
enough information so that they couldn't sue you successfully. In the new rule, 506B, as in Bravo, if you're dealing with non-accredited investors, then the issuer is required to give you a fair degree of information. In Title IV deals, the issuer is required to give you a very, very substantial amount of information. And in Title III deals, the issuer is also entitled to provide a pretty significant amount of of, uh, information. So with all that said, how does an investor evaluate that disclosure document? I have to say as a lawyer that most disclosure documents you are going to read are absolutely impenetrable. They are cannot be understood, even by other lawyers often, but right. by a lay person, just they are just filled with legal boilerplate and repetition and cross references mm-hmm. and just extremely difficult to to understand. Um, my own view is for most investors, the safest way to invest in any of these deals is based on reputation. Right. Invest only with people with good reputations right. um, because it's really, really hard to separate the wheat from the chaff based on whatever legal documents people provide. Mm-hmm. Invest along with other people that you respect. If a if you know someone that you believe is very, very sophisticated and has invested with this developer you know, six times before successfully, then you can probably feel pretty safe investing with that person as well. I, I would – when you're looking at a disclosure document, you are, they, they all should have a risk section, and they mm-hmm. list a whole bunch of risks. You should read those risks very carefully. You should understand about insider transactions – you know, where the promoter is paying himself a bunch of money, even when you as an investor are not getting money. You should look at the, you know, the balance sheet of the issuer. You should look at the issuer's track record and, you know, use some common sense when you're doing it. But with all that said, I would I would absolutely recommend investing on reputation more than documents. Fantastic. That's that's very very good advice. Reputation uh, is is very very important in this industry, or you know, regardless of the industry you're in, raising capital from people, you're taking that that money and placing it into an investment so they can make money, and so reputation is very very important. Now, Mark, a lot of listeners on my show are international investors. They want to invest here in the United States, and they can go out and buy U.S. real estate. They could buy a single family or a small duplex or whatever which is a good way to get started, or they could get involved in a real estate syndication, which is another way to get involved. Do you want to talk briefly about how syndicators can use international investors or or if and how syndicators can use international investors in their syndication? And what are the requirements that those international investors must meet? Is it similar to what US investors must meet in terms of accreditation? Uh, Great question. From a US developer's point of view, one, money is money. And U.S. developers are willing to accept whatever currency your (laughs) listeners might have. I always say if you find a real estate guy who's not looking for capital, call 911. (laughs) Um, So they will accept offshore money for sure. Mm -hmm. And they can do it 
from a securities lawyer's point, point of view, they can do it in either of two ways. One, they can treat the non-U.S. investors the same as they treat U.S. investors. So if they're doing a Rule 506C offering, they have to make sure that all of the non-U.S. investors are accredited, just as they make sure U.S. investors are. Mm-hmm. And, and similarly with all the other kinds of offerings. And all three flavors of crowdfunding, absolutely you can raise money from non-U.S. investors, no problem. Mm-hmm. The other way to do it is there's a special kind of offering under the U.S. securities laws called Regulation S, as in Samuel. And Regulation S is basically saying we're only selling to non-U.S. investors because when you think about it, the U.S. government doesn't care about protecting non-U.S. investors just as the, say, Australian government doesn't care about protecting U.S. investors. So if you structure a Regulation S offering, all that means is we have to jump through a bunch of hoops to demonstrate that all of our investors are non-U.S. persons. And if we do that, we can do anything. We don't have to provide them with any information, et cetera, et cetera. Now, at the next, if we drill down a little, Technically, theoretically, we should be complying with the securities laws of all of the other countries where those investors <laughs> right. live. Right. But from a U.S. point of view, so we can either treat them as U.S. investors or we can do a Regulation S offering. Right. And you know, to answer the other part of your question, if I were a non-U.S. investor looking to get into the U.S. real estate market – I would definitely be looking at the sort of the top U.S. real estate crowdfunding sites. Again, investing on reputation, reputation, reputation. And those sites have some terrific deals. So I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, your, your question is fantastic. It is a huge additional source of capital, um, all this non-U.S. money. China is just <laughs> itself an incredible pool of capital and right now Chinese are trying to get their money you know out of their home currency into US dollars and if they can invest in real estate it's so much the better but they they want to make these investments just for the currency risk or the right. currency stability so Terrific question. Right. Thanks. And that's that sort of goes back to the point of this show, and that is to get international investors investing here in the United States. And we talked a little bit about harboring uh, in US, your money in U.S. currency and how important that is moving forward in uncertain times, but that was on another show. Uh, but, Mark, what has been – last question. What has been the biggest mistake you've seen syndicators or crowdfunding experts do when raising capital from maybe the traditional sense and now moving forward into the new age in terms of online marketing and stuff like that? What has been the biggest mistakes? I guess I would say that the biggest mistake from a developer's point of view is to not understand how what crowdfunding is and how crowdfunding works. Now, this mm-hmm. is a crowdfunding answer. I'll get back to a syndication <laughs> answer. Crowdfunding is a marketing business. It is not a real estate business. It's not a technology business. It's not a finance business. It's a marketing business. So people trying to raise money in crowdfunding have to understand that it's not simply if I build it, they will come. Um, 
I need to be thinking most of the time about marketing. So that a mistake people make, you know, and, and that's not unusual in the, the business world, focus on marketing. That's from a, a developer's point of view. In a more general syndication perspective, you see a lot of sloppy deals that just, you know, they just rounded the corners. And, I, and I, I've seen this, you know, on some of them not as reputable crowdfunding sites also, just being sloppy, um, documents being sloppy, financial projections being sloppy, you, you know, and, and sloppiness does not inspire confidence. So at that particular crowdfunding site, which is actually fair, fairly well known, I mean, I, I once went through a projection. I, as I said, started, I'm a, I'm a math guy, so I'm a kind of numbers guy. Yep. And I just drilled carefully down through their projections, and they just were freaking nonsense. And I have not invested at that site. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> don't be sloppy. Do right. it. Do everything uh, right. That's what inspires confidence. Right, right. And it goes back to your what you said before in terms of reputation, reputation, reputation. Yep. And that is, you know, if you're not putting out a product which is underwritten correctly, it has, you know, as you're saying, it doesn't have sloppy numbers. Your projections are correct and on what the market is showing or, and you understand your market. And it sort of, you know, trickles all the way down to your documentation. So it starts at the high level of making sure you have a good deal or a cracking deal underwriting's well, you know, solid and, and it's going to perform like you, you say it's going to perform because that's one of the biggest things that I, mistakes that I see or in, in, in crowdfunding people or, or syndication people that they just don't have a decent enough deal and they're trying to push uh, mud uphill and it just doesn't work. Yeah, uh, so yeah absolutely. And let me add for all investors, but for non-US investors also, I think investing in pools of property. Pools of real estate is a much better choice than, mm -hmm. you know, sinking all your money into one or two projects yep. because who the heck knows, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm a big advocate of, of pooled assets, yep. even in, in the crowdfunding space. Right. And for all those listening out there, what, what Mark is talking about is, is, is a fund. It could be a real estate investment trust. It could be, could be anything. And it just mitigates it, it's people raising money in a fund, and they place the money in, in, in numerous deals, so it, it, it spreads the risk uh, across different asset classes or different just assets in, in general. So, Mark, with all your experience in raising capital here in the United States, I know you're primed to give me your top five investing tips. What's the most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Oh boy! As an investor, yeah, discipline. Okay. I, I think you know, have a plan, have a plan, and and stick with it, and just be willing to ignore the the ups and downs. I think I think that's true no no matter what asset class you're investing in personally. Fantastic. What's the most influential tool in your business, and why? In my business of practicing law. Yeah, it could be practicing law. It could be. Uh, what, whatever you think that is the most influential in in that particular business. Yeah, I guess, unfortunately, I guess I'm going to, I'd love to sound really cool and say, you know, it's my iPad, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm sure it's, it's my, it's my PC. It's my PC is, is where I earn my living. Right. I will say, I'll just take the, the opportunity 
because this has become actually an extremely important tool for me. Right. I, 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 I do I do use my iPad, but and in particular I have a app on my iPad. I don't know if you've used it called Microsoft OneNote. Yes. Now I have not been a Microsoft fan, but since they got their new CEO, mm-hmm. they have come out with the most fantastic apps for the iOS world. And both Word and Excel in the their iOS versions are fantastic. And OneNote, um, I am right now not in a mental hospital because of OneNote. <laughs> I mean, I was just I was being overwhelmed with information. Yep. You know, I'm on the phone all day talking about crowdfunding in in particular. And I, my office was filled with yellow pieces of paper and notes here, and I found OneNote. You know, you, a lot of apps are cool, you know, the one you can look at the sky and see the stars and all. It's all real cool, mm-hmm. but you rarely find an app that actually changes your life. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Microsoft OneNote really has done that for me. And I, I use Microsoft OneNote as well just because it gets it out of my head and it puts it into a – uh, on on my computer, and as he says, there's not 2,700 little bits of yellow notes floating around. Yeah. You can see it sequentially, and you can tick it off as you go. And you, you know, it looks. It just keeps everything a little bit more organised. And as I said, it's the most important thing. It's out of your, your head, and it's in. It's on a piece of paper, and you have more space to think about other things. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mark, what's the most exciting project you're working on right now? Oh man, I mean that's a good question. I am so fortunate. I am working on so many exciting projects. Right. I mean, and, you know, all crowdfunding uh, projects, you know, doing big offerings for new crowdfunding portals, new kinds of crowdfunding portals. I get to talk with people like you, entrepreneurs, inventive, outside-the-box people all day, and they have the most incredible ideas. You know, just yesterday, I started working with a, a new client who's going to build a portal for agricultural property. It's just a fantastic, his business model, just fantastic. So I get to work on cool stuff absolutely every day, and I I have a great time doing it. Fantastic. That's great. I I would love to see more about that as uh, as the platform progresses, I guess. You could say you could have made a pun and said, "As the platform grows, I guess, right? As an <laughs> very, very, there you go. <laughs> you beat me to it." <laughs> uh, and, and Mark, who is the most influential person in your career? I'd have to say a guy named Rick Flaster, who mm. was the founder of this firm, and unfortunately died at a pretty young age, about five years ago. But Rick was an incredible, incredible lawyer and an incredible person. And had certain certain code of conduct about yeah how how to act and in particular how lawyers should act and among other things Rick <laughs> Rick was self righteous in a in a good way um, Rick thought insisted that lawyers should always be right. They should always do what's right and always find the right answer and and just stick with it through thick and thin. You always have to be right and take whatever time it takes to get to a point where you are right as opposed to just kind of winging it. And that, for me, that has been, you know, just kind of the a lodestar 
whatever else is going on, if if I if I know that I'm doing it right and I, just doing great great work and being right is you know that that has been really important to me personally and in my career, and that is from Rick. I I love what yeah I love that but doing the right thing and and making sure that you're doing right by others I think is very very important regardless of whether you're a yeah. lawyer or not or just in business and and making sure that you are doing the right thing and you you can sleep at night because you are doing the right steps and so Rick that's uh, pretty incredible stuff and, and my condolences to you uh, and the firm yeah yeah so really sorry I think about Rick very often and wish you were you you know I'm sure yeah. you have people like that too you just exactly. You just say, "Darn it! I I wish you were still around." Yeah, yeah. It's 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 sad to lose people, not only that you love, that who are very influential in your career. Yeah. So, Mark, last question: Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? But the best way to reach me is probably through my blog, because you know all my all my contact information is there, and the actual my actual blog is www.crowdfundattorney.com, but the attorney is spelled kind of funny. So the uh, woman in my office who handles the blog, she gave it another name for situations like this. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just markroderick.net. Okay. It's my, my name.net, and Fantastic. that's how you find me. And, and for all the listeners out there, we'll put that in the show notes below. So just remember to go to the website and uh, – click on the podcast tab and we'll have all those links up there. Well, Mark, I was extremely excited knowing that you're coming on the show today talking about syndication and crowdfunding and how used correctly can really help scale a business regardless if it's real estate or not. I know a lot of people out there will be re-listening to this show as you provided some absolutely cracking information and it's definitely a hot topic. And just a bit of a recap, we talked all about Regulation D and how the old rules meant that you couldn't solicit funds from the public, but now with the new jobs act it's changing the world very very quickly like as you're saying connecting people that you may not know like you connect with your uber driver you might be connecting with other investors out there that you may not know to help fund your business so absolutely great stuff thanks mate for dropping in and chatting with us have a great rest of your week and we'll catch up soon thank you so much for having me really enjoyed it well, there you have it, the end of part three of my series on using syndication to help grow your business. More incredible, straightforward insight information into understanding the requirements of raising capital here in the US. As most of you know, I use syndication on my real estate business to help purchase large multifamily institutional deals across the US. And if any investors out there here in the US or overseas are looking to consider getting involved in a syndication or crowdfunding platform and you need someone to review your PPM or any other documentation, shoot Mark an email. Him and his team will only be too willing to help you out. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's show and our conversation with Mark. And everything goes up on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com. Remember to click on the podcast tab. So to continue the conversation with us, you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter by searching RSM Property Group. And if you do like this show, remember to give it a five-star iTunes review as it's quick and easy and helps us grow the show's reach across the globe. So until next week, take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Happy investing.